Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and welcome to episode 70. And this is going to be an especially fun trip down memory lane and look at vintage wrestling fandom with the pro wrestling super fan, George Shire. A lot of you already know George. You know that. His wrestling knowledge goes back a long, long way. He's particularly an expert on the old American Wrestling Association, and we're going to talk about that and about a lot of other things. But before that, I have a couple things I want to mention. It may take a little longer than usual, but it's been a big week for me, so uh, just bear with me. First of all, I wanted to just again make mention, as I'm recording this now, I am back. I've been back a few days from my week-long library tour in the state of Michigan, promoting Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, speaking to people, doing some library talks, and it was a resounding success. And I just want to thank everybody that came out to the signings, to the talks. It was fun meeting all of you and talking to all of you. I want to especially thank the Charlotte Community Library, as well as the District Library in Corona and the St. Clair County Library in Port Huron, who were all marvelous, marvelous hosts, especially the District Library in Corona, who helped to put me up in a beautiful and certainly very unique bed and breakfast in Corona. I, I certainly appreciate that. I enjoyed the week. And again, it's always very humbling to me to uh, really kind of be reminded that people actually read the things that I write and enjoy them. So uh, thank you again to everybody for coming out and being so great and having so many great questions because that really does make the sessions go so much better. Thank you. And I hope to do it again very soon. And if you're curious for how it went, I've posted a lot of pictures and information about my time in Michigan and what it was like. It can be found on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, which if you are not a member of it yet, what are you waiting for? Join it. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Also want to make mention of a play that I had the opportunity to see here in Connecticut last weekend in Brantford, Connecticut at the Legacy Theater. It's called Masters of Puppets, and I mention it because it is a wrestling-themed play. It has nothing to do with Metallica. It is a wrestling-themed play, and it is really quite remarkable, and especially if you know your wrestling, then there's a lot in here that I think you will get out of this play, even more than people who maybe don't know wrestling. Um, It kind of follows the fictionalized exploits of a wrestling organization called the WIW, which is run by a man named Victor Cragston, 
and his wife, Delia Craxton, who has political aspirations. Um, if any of this sounds very familiar, it should, because a lot of this is extremely thinly veiled stuff. There is a wrestling character called the Reaper. There is a kind of Southern fried fanny pack wearing booker called Rainy Days, who consistently brags about selling out the Superdome. So if all of this sounds like something you might want to check out, I encourage you, if you're in the area, to go down to the Legacy Theater in Branford and see this play. Also, it happens to star in the role of Victor Craxton, the promoter, Kurt Fuller, who you may know, especially if you are a wrestling fan, you may know Kurt Fuller for his unforgettable role as the bad guy in No Holds Barred, uh, opposing Rip, played by Hulk Hogan, which I actually had a chance to ask him about when I saw this play. I mentioned to him if maybe getting to play a sort of pseudo-Vince character might be revenge for being cast in No Holds Barred. Uh, but also, it is produced by James Rodé Rodriguez, who you may know from the TV show Psych, and it has a couple of cast members, uh, including Kurt, who are from that show as well. I went into this show not really knowing what to expect because I thought, you know, well, this might be done by a bunch of people who don't really know wrestling and it'll come off very poorly. And, you know, even though obviously the plot is extremely far-fetched even for wrestling standards, you know, it's a play, so it has to have high drama you know, so there's like a murder mystery and all this kind of stuff going on in there, uh, but mixed in with a lot of very smart and very interesting commentary on the wrestling business from somebody who must know it very well. Lawrence Davis, the playwright, really knows his stuff, puts a lot of very um, telling references into the show that can only have been put there by someone who knows the business. So I encourage you to check it out. Masters of Puppets at the Legacy Theater in Brantford, Connecticut. You can look it up. Tickets are available if you happen to be in the area. Now, let us get to the matter at hand this week. I love talking old school wrestling. And as you know, on this show, week to week, we have different guests and the conversation varies depending on the guest, what we get to talk about. So it's a unique honor to talk to somebody like George, whose knowledge, the breadth of his knowledge, is so deep and wide that you can talk to him about so much of wrestling from the mid and late 20th century. And so, you know, the conversation focuses a bit on the AWA, as I said, but goes to many different places. And I think old school wrestling fans are going to absolutely love this one. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it is my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle. These are among my favorite episodes. I love to be able to talk to historians. I have with me a guest who is a writer and a historian, particularly on the American Wrestling Association, the AWA. You may have heard him a couple of years back on the 605 Super Podcast. That's where I first got to know about him. And I, it, it's my pleasure and my honor to welcome to the show George Shire. George, thanks for coming on Shut Up and Wrestle. Thank you, Brian, for reaching out to me. It's a pleasure, honest. And I want to say the first thing I want to say about that, because I know, you know, because this show is on the same platform as the 605, is that when I listened to you and Brian talk, what I found so valuable is that you're, especially talking about the AWA, 
your memory and knowledge of the AWA goes back to the beginning of the AWA because I find like with a lot of uh, wrestling history today, when you talk about people that are fans of a certain territory, whether it be the WWF or whether it be Crockett, you'll hear a lot of 70s and 80s. Like, for example, with the AWA, there's plenty of people that will talk your ear off about the dying days of the AWA and and what happened in the 80s with Hogan and Bachwinkle and things kind of starting to go downhill later. There's people that will talk about the 70s, but it's very rare to be able to really hear firsthand uh, accounts of the AWA of the 1960s. That's really fascinating to me. Well, you know, here's here's how I describe it. Um, when you talk of, you mentioned the Hogan era of AWA. And when I look back at that, that was a big deal. But the, the fans that were coming into the arenas at the time in 1980 to 84, when Hogan was in the AWA, these were these were the young fans that were 15, 16, 17 years old. And so you look at them today, and those are your under 50s. I mean, they're they're pushing 50, maybe, and they have no knowledge. Um, one of my most one of the guys I admire a lot for what he's done in pro wrestling is Wade Keller. I know you probably heard of Wade Keller. Sure. And Wade and I have been friends since you know he's an AWA guy originally, or he still lives here. And his very first match live card that he attended was when he was a, a teenager and it was Vern Gagne's May 10th, 1981 retirement match. And so Wade doesn't know anything before that. He may have watched some wrestling before coming to that, but he doesn't know anything before that. And Wade and I used to do a radio show together in the early, was very late 80s, early 90s. And it was a Sunday morning radio show at one of our local stations. And the fans would be calling in and they'd want to talk about wrestlers from the 60s or the 70s. And Wade would want to talk about the stuff that was happening in the 80s because that was his era. And he would get frustrated, like, well, we're taking too many questions on this guy from the 60s, you know. So him and I used to josh back and forth. But it is it really is. It's a generation. thing. And the one advantage that I have, I'm going to say I'm blessed with it. You can tell me, you can mention a name to me, and I can tell you when he was here, the date, you know, the dates, the time frame, but I can do that all over the country. You just name a wrestler and I'll tell you where they were. I don't know how I can do that. I, I don't, but I do. And yet I can't remember if I ate breakfast this morning. You know? <laughs> that is a great so, gift. That's a great gift. Like, um, you know, a, another thing that comes to mind, because I also had on this show, a while back, Mike Sempervivi, who does a lot of stuff with Dave Meltzer and and talks history on his shows with him. And he is uh, um, fascinated by the Carolinas territory. And yeah. we were talking about how you talk about it today and really to get people to talk about, you know, pre Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat era, you know, pre, you know, back to the tag team glory days of the sixties with, you know, Rip Hawk and sweet Hanson and George Becker and Johnny Weaver. Mm -hmm. Like you don't, you don't hear that a lot. You just, because people talk about what they remember seeing as a fan. And so it becomes an age thing 
or a generational thing. Like with me and Mike is about my age, you know, I've always had a fascination with learning about what happened before. You, you know what I mean? I, I started out as a fan in the 80s. I had a very limited knowledge of wrestling. I was, you know, exposed to the WWF like so many kids my age at the time. Right, right. But I just became so interested, thanks to magazines and other things, later the internet, in delving into it. And so that's, to me, where my interest always goes, is the the earlier stuff that you don't get to hear as much about. Well, and the interesting thing about it is, I think there were various kinds of wrestling fans. I was the wrestling fan that I would go to the matches, I would buy a program, and I guarded that program like I wasn't going to let anybody spill their pop on it or, or walk on it or, you know, the whole thing. I'd bring it home. But I started buying 15, 20 programs at a card. And I set up this whole doggone network of people in different cities around the country, Tampa, Houston, Boston, Indianapolis, you name it. And I would send them my program. They would send me their program. So I knew what was going on all over the country, all at the same time. And I was a different type of a fan. I always wanted to know what the wrestlers were doing. You know, in the kayfabe era, I mean, they would have died before they'd have told you that the endings of the matches were <laughs> predetermined and that sort of thing. But I was able to figure it out as a little kid. And then I shut my mouth. I never said anything. I never. And I always use this example. I remember when Marty O'Neill, our TV announcer, he came on the air one night and he said, uh, uh, starting the program off, he said, fans, we're sorry to report to you that Pepper Gomez due to the beating he took from Lars Anderson last week, is out of action indefinitely. We'll keep you up to date on his injuries, but, you know, and Lars Anderson has been suspended. Well, I kind of giggle because I go, I just received a San Francisco program. Pepper's in the main event, and Lars Anderson is teamed with Paul DeMarco. You know, so you kind of figure it all out. I knew where they were. I knew what they were doing. And you knew that injury was their excuse to be gone either permanently or for a temporary period of time. And I'm I'm imagining, I mean, I'm positive, very few fans, very, very few had any awareness of any wrestling that was going on anywhere else other than in their territory. We had, Brian, we had no outlet to do it. You know, magazines, you had, you had the magazines, just the, right? just the East coast. Or I mean that, well, I say East coast, but the wrestling magazines that were on the newsstand in the day, wrestling review, wrestling world, ring wrestling later on the wrestler and inside wrestling and all those came along. But uh, that was the only thing you saw. And when you picked those up, you know, they were always uh, three, four months behind. So you'd see some article on someone um, you'd see a wrestler that, you know, maybe you wanted to see. I remember when uh, I'd seen Billy Red Lions in a lot of my Texas programs when I was getting him. And my he was out in California, San Francisco. And I, I'd see him in the programs. And I was just, I was enamored with the guy. I'd see him in the magazines. Well, when he finally came here in 1968, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I finally was going to get to see Billy Red Lions. But it was all because of the hype. But no, you did not know that when you saw 
two wrestlers in a main event tonight in Minneapolis that maybe last night or the night before that, they were tag team partners in some other city. Right. And maybe they were in opposite roles. You know, the crusher are when he turned babyface in 65, he remained a babyface in St. Louis. Or, I mean, he remained a heel in baby St. Louis for uh, the remainder of his time appearing there. You know, it was never a baby there. So you'd see him here as a baby and then you'd see him in, in a St. Louis card and he'd be wrestling one of the local baby faces. You know, we just didn't have the outlet. We didn't have any way of knowing. And we lived in our little circle with television and we only had three or four TV stations back in the day. They right. didn't tell you that there was any other wrestling network out there, a wrestling promotion. And not everybody that was a fan bought the magazines. So right. there's, there's no there's, cable. There's no, I don't even, there, there was the, no UHF even. No, time, right? UHF didn't come in until the later eighties, right. mid eighties, whatever it was. Yeah. It was about the mid eighties. I, I remember, I think it was 83, 84 or something. We got one of the UHF stations here in uh, the twin cities. Cause I know from yeah. talking to, you know, cause I grew up in the New York area and, and I know from talking to older fans they would tell me that there were points where on UHF in New York, you could see Florida wrestling and you could see um, the wrestling from Los Angeles. And I believe it was on the Spanish language channel where I don't even, I think they had Spanish commentary, but you could see it. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there was that much else, especially um, if you didn't have cable, which really didn't become which was until maybe I guess the mid seventies is when people started getting cable, but there was very, very little. And, and I would venture to say, because you're in, you know, being in New York city, we probably got more exposure than most markets would get to any kind of outside wrestling. Right. Well, we, we didn't get cable in the twin cities. I want to say, I want to say it was probably the very early 80s, like 83 or 84. And then all of a sudden you'd get a, a wrestling program on. By the time that the WWF took Hulk Hogan from the AWA, that was in 80, the end, of, that was in 84, the beginning of 84. Um, by that time, we had had maybe two, three, four wrestling programs that were coming in. We were getting Southwest Championship Wrestling, which was Joe Blanchard's territory down in right. San the Antonio. U USA Network. Yep. Yeah, in the USA Network. We were getting, of course, you didn't have all the cable channels you do either today, but we were getting, uh, we could get TBS, which was the super, you know, the super station at the time uh, with Turner. And that was still the old NWA wrestling. That was before Turner, you know, took it over. Yeah, we were getting. Uh, oh boy, we used to get some of the talk programs. Joe Petticino and what was Blackstone, the lady's name? Bonnie Blackstone. Bonnie Blackstone. We were getting some of those. Whatever networks we we got Mid South every once in a while, but these were all on the UHF stations. They weren't necessarily on a cable station. They were just coming in that way. And another so, thing, younger fans don't realize is in those days when you talk about that with UHF and things. It looked like crap. I mean, the reception oh, would be on a lot of these channels would be horrendous. You'd have like yeah. double images. You'd have static. You'd have the the vertical and horizontal going crazy. Well, yeah, and I I remember we had to have a special antenna or something that we had to hook on. I mean, it it was different. But in the 
well, 50s, 60s, 70s, if you turned on wrestling in your city, wherever you are, USA, if you turned on wrestling, that's the only show you saw. And whatever they told you, whatever the announcers or the, the card was, you know, boasting about, you you really did have no knowledge that maybe they met each other the last 13 nights in a row, but they're telling you that they're finally signed for Minneapolis, wherever it is. And uh, the promoter went all out and spent, you know, opened the pocketbook to get them here. You know, you felt exclusive and you had no way to. And P, I don't care what anybody says. I think we were. I hate to use the word more gullible back then, but today the world is just too big. Right. You know, you, you, you cannot do anything without it being on the internet. Nanoseconds. I think it was easier to, to get people to buy in. I certainly do. I, I do think there was, and, and, and I, I mean, this is something that's interesting to me that I could ask you because you were a fan and you were going to these shows at the time. Um, because I speak to my own experience of it from the '80s, what would you say, on average, the per- if you if you had to estimate among the fans, how what percentage of those people do you think really truly believed what they were seeing? Because because for me, I I felt like there was a sizable part of that audience that did. In in even in, you know this is going back to the '80s. What yeah. would you say? Um, I would say that generally speaking. The the hardcore fans, if you call them hardcore back then, the fans that would make most of the cards, you know, it, it was just in their DNA they were going to go to the wrestling matches. I think many of them believed it. I can hear. I I remember hearing fans saying, "Well, um, that that wasn't real, but that was real." You know, they'll see something, yes. and <laughs> and for that second, they suspended disbelief. But I, I think. The vast majority, if you looked at, if you ever get a chance, and and sadly there's so few out there, but if you look at old crowds at, in the arenas, you can tell the fans that are really into it by their standing up and pointing their fingers and you know having to be ushered back to their seat. And we used to have that all the time. Um, I always adhered to the theory that I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Nick Kozak, the uh, Texas wrestler. He he made the comment one time. He's you know people say well you know re- is wrestling fake or wrestling's fake, and Nick Kozak just simply said you know he says I've gotten so used to it I I have a standard answer, for those who don't believe no explanations going to do, and for those who do believe no explanations next necessary, and then you leave it at that, and in my book my Minnesota uh, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling. I added a a comment to that, my own comment. I made the comment, I said, for those who believe, it's a lot like Santa Claus. It is more fun when you believe. And and I I, I came up with that because I remember when when my, my youngest daughter was little and we had Santa Claus come to the house one time. And she was three years old, I think, three, just gonna turn four. I can't explain to you how when she went upstairs to go back to bed after Santa left the house, Santa had told her, and this scared the hell out of me at the time, me and my wife, we looked at each other like, oh boy, how are we going to pull this off? She asked him where his reindeer were. 
And she he told her that they were at the corner waiting because he has to come to all the houses on the block. And she wanted to see the reindeer. And Santa said, okay, well, Santa's got to go and you go up to back to bed now and go to bed for your parents. She went up and she looked out her bedroom window. And I swear to God, she goes, her, her older sister was Amy. She goes, there it is, Amy. I see him. I see it. A sleigh. And I looked at my wife and I go, she really does see it. I, because, I, because she wanted to believe. She wanted exactly, to believe. Yes. Exactly. And as, as a little four-year-old, she saw that sleigh. And so that's what I said about wrestling. It's more fun when you believe. And you know how fun it is at Christmas when you have that magic. Even when you're an adult and you see the little kids believing in Santa Claus or, you know, what Santa brought them. It's all about that. And wrestling was able to capture us because um, I think because of the believable characters. You know, I lived, I grew up in an era when uh, I, I feel bad that it's gone today, yet I understand why it is. But when we had the, the hated uh, Japanese wrestlers on American soil, you know, in the 50s and the early 60s, even into the early 70s. Our programs, and I tell this to people, I say the headline in the program will say dirty Japs. Mm. Okay, well, that's not politically correct. It's wrong. It was wrong then and it's wrong now. But it was that sentiment because we fought World War II America against the Japanese. They were evil. You know, the whole Pearl Harbor thing and all of our veterans that came. My dad, my dad was a World War II vet. And the very first match that I recall going with him, it was a heel versus heel match, tag team. Mitsu Arakawa and Kinji Shibuya, the dirty Japs, as they were, against Ivan and Carol Kelmakov, the garlic-eating, hated Russians. And when they when they came into the arena and were introduced into the ring, now I was six years old. And I look around the auditorium, and again, being a little kid, your perceptions are different. I looked around, and I swore everybody in the whole world was in the auditorium. And it was probably three, 4,000 people. I don't know. But, you know, in, in a little kid world, my world was the block I lived on and the kids in my classroom. That That's the world. So both tag teams are booed right to the rafters. And I remember covering my ears. It hurt my ears. It was so loud. And I said to my dad. I said, Dad, pulling his shirt. I said, why are they booing all four guys? And my dad says, I hope they all kill each other. <laughs> and I, I remember going, wow. Well, in the match, the fans could not pick a, 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 a team to choose for. So it was interesting because when one of the Russians would hit one of the Japanese, the fans would cheer. When one of the Japanese would hit the Russian, the fans would cheer. They really wanted the, the fans really wanted them to eliminate each other. So I learned later on, you know, as I got older, I learned about that, that sentiment that the promoters all around the country, we had all around America, we had hated Japanese, hated Russians, hated Germans. You know, Germany was an enemy in, in World War II. We had all these hated people on our soil. And the the sentiment was we want to we want to eliminate them 
and promoters played on it. It made tons of money. And you had wrestlers that weren't really, you know, Hans Schmidt, one of the greatest, I swear to you, if you saw him in his heyday, he was one of the greatest German villains of all time. He was so believable. And you wanted that guy to be sent home. Well, he wasn't even German. He was a French Canadian, you know, that came across this gimmick to be a hated German and do the goose step across the ring. And it, it was beautiful. Ivan really, Koloff was also French Canadian. Absolutely. Ivan Koloff, you know, he's a, he's a French Canadian. He comes down here and becomes friends with Bruno. Bruno Bruno wanted to lose his title when, when it was time, when Bruno wanted to give it up. He says, I'll lose it to, to Ivan. You know, that, well, that was a respect thing. But Ivan, and, and, you know, to show the power of Ivan Koloff, since you brought that up, on that historic night, January 18th of 1971, in the Madison Square Garden, See, I can rattle this stuff off. And again, I don't know if I ate yet today. But in the Madison Square Garden, when Bruno was pinned by Koloff, they literally ushered him out of the ring with no fanfare, got him out of there before they would announce that Bruno had been beaten. Because the fans of that era believed so strongly in Bruno as their hero and Koloff beating him, the evil Russian, you know, they I think they'd have probably tore the building down. That's how rabid fans could be. We we have people here that talk about, and you talk about the fans believing. We have fans talk about Chicago. And you go to the International Amphitheater. I don't know what it was about the Chicago mentality, but there wasn't a, a card you could go to that, they didn't have blood, and the fans wanted the blood, and they were yelling for the blood. What? <laughs> you know? Right. It, it was just, so. They they had their their fan base, and yeah. they knew how to cater to it. Like when we were talking about the you know fans believing thing, I think what sometimes confuses people when they try to look back and piece things together, what I find is that there seems to have been – you know, the general public, the American public at large, the mainstream American public were were wise to pro wrestling. I mean, we all know that they look pro wrestling was looked down on. It was kind of a laughing stock. The average person on the street, you know, the the running joke was that it's not real, and and they would make fun of it and all this. But the the core fans were a different breed. A lot of them were made up of people that were not that did believe so so i find that 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 whoever there was i'm trying to articulate this as best as i can who still in their heart believed in wrestling and didn't look down on it those were the people that went to see wrestling and watched wrestling and so i think that's why when you when you when you watch a wrestling audience in those days you may walk away thinking well i guess most people in america thought that wrestling was real back then. And I don't think that that's true, but I think that a, a, a large portion of the fans did, which is, I think, a, a different thing. Yeah. I, I I think the the fan base believed 
but then, you know, I always, when, when somebody says to me, well, you, you know, that stuff's fake, don't you? Or when I was younger, they'd say, well, you know, that's fake, don't you? And a lot of times I wouldn't even continue the conversation because it goes back to, there's nothing I'm going to say that's going to convince, convince you differently. But on the other hand, I could sometimes say to them, well, wasn't John Wayne in that movie you just saw last night? Wasn't that fake? I mean, did John Wayne really get shot? Did John Wayne really die? Did Bruce Willis really die? Or, you know, I mean, so, and sometimes that would cool people off. You realize that it's entertainment. You know, Vince McMahon Jr., he coined that it's entertainment, but it's been entertainment from day one. Right. They just would never tell you that flat out, but it was. Well, it's, he calls it sports entertainment, and I, I don't want to go there, but it was entertainment in the sense that these guys, they were going to do their best in the ring to give, you know, Vern Gagne, I swear to you that the, the most important thing he ever said, he said, our job is to get the fans off the couch when they're watching TV, all-star wrestling, to get them off the couch and get them over to the arena. And he said, but once we get them in the arena, now we got to give them a reason to come back. And that's what happens in the arena shows. If you were just a TV wrestling fan, you missed an awful lot because TV was the enticer to get you there. But once you got there, that's when you saw the foreign objects being used and the guy losing by disqualification or the interference from a manager or a tag team partner or whatever other skullduggery they could come up with to, to irritate the fans. You know that your guy lost, but he didn't really lose because he was cheated. You're going to come back next week or next month. So Vern said it best. He said, once we get them there, we got to do something in the arena to make them want to run to that box office and get their ticket for the revenge match. And that's what it was all about. And it's the same as your favorite TV show. You watch your favorite TV show and you, you got a cliffhanger, or cliffhanger ending. Aren't you going to, can't wait to tune in next week? You know, today everybody, I don't know, DVDs and TiVos. Well, and today, the, the big shift today is that everything is on television. The television, exactly. the television became the purpose and the destination. All your biggest matches your biggest payoffs, uh, the angles and things, everything is TV. And ironically, the live events are an afterthought. The you know the house shows are 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 almost um, well. I mean, they're completely missable. You're not. You may have a fun time, but you're not going to. The best stuff is on TV today. Well, and you know, here's the thing. Okay, since we're kind of comparing the two, um, pro wrestling in my day. The TV mat or the TV matches were what they called the squash matches. You had a main event wrestler against the jobber. We like to call them enhancement talent, but most of them I've ever known said we were proud to be jobbers. And they were a lot of them were decent workers. They just that was their job to lose to whoever the star was. And and it was the interviews in those days. The the main event wrestler would have their match. They'd come on to the interview area. And they had usually two, maybe three minutes to get their point across. You know, they ad-libbed everything. The interviews, the talkers, the Bachwinkles, the Mad Dogs, the Ray Stevens, Bobby Heenans, you know, and just, I could name a hundred, couple hundred of them. They were so good at getting you either to hate them in that two minutes 
or to love them in that two minutes, whatever their role was. And to get you to run to the auditorium or to a box office in those days to get your ticket. Whereas today, again, we talked about, you know, the local area where you didn't know what was going on, but with social media, with internet, with cable. Yeah, it is. It's the pay-per-view event, which is a national event. Um, you're not going to see that at the local arena. You're going to see it on that big cable uh, pay-per-view or whatever it is. And so it has changed in that sense where now you got to go and get the pay-per-view and, and I don't know, does Vince even do pay-per-views anymore? Well, they do. with his network or what? Yeah, it's it's all on the network. So like the events that used to be sold through pay-per-view, they're still done. Okay. But they're, they call them premium live events now because you can't really call it a pay-per-view if you're not asking people to pay extra. So you're paying for the, the monthly subscription. Gotcha. And gotcha. as part of that, you get the monthly big show. Okay. As part of the package. But what I think is one thing that breaks my heart, and um, especially in terms of posterity and being able to discover things, is that because of the way it was back then, because the enticement was there's no TV, you can't come, you can't see this unless you come live, and this is where all the good stuff is going to happen. Now, because of that, all those great shows and legendary matches and moments and things the large majority of them you cannot watch now. They're gone. They're lost. They're only in people's memory. Yeah. Well, and the difference, too, is that I always like to use this analogy because with today's wrestling, I mean, and for many, many years now, it has been where the entrance to the ring, we know that the fireworks are going off and it's a brightly lit auditorium and there's confetti flying around. And you know how long the entrance takes for them to walk down the the ramp to the ring and then they get in the ring and they have this long 10 minute, 15 minute dissertation with, you know, whatever they're saying, which a lot of it is, we know it's all scripted now and written for them. Sure. Poor guys got to memorize a book before they can go into the ring. Whereas that when you go back and, and my, anybody before my era can't picture this because they didn't live it. But when you went to the auditorium, the auditorium itself was dark. You had the ring in the center of the floor, and you had these lights above the ring. Four lights, generally speaking, maybe three, five, it doesn't matter, but they were shining down on the wrestler's stage, the ring. When the wrestlers would be introduced, coming out for their matches, we didn't have any spotlight on them at all. You'd hear the fans way back in the corner when the, when a, let's just say, a crusher, popular as you can all get out. He'd come out of the locker room and you'd hear the rumbling of the crowd as he's coming through and the crowd's getting louder as he gets to the ring. But you, if you're sitting ringside, which I always was, you don't see him until he gets to ringside. And then he gets into the ring. And then the bad guy would come out. Usually they had it set up where the bad guy would come from the other direction because the illusion was always they came from two separate you know, locker rooms. Most of the time it was just one locker room, but we didn't know that. So here comes the bad guy. And then you hear, you hear the little rustle, you know, you can hear the noise get and all of a sudden you start hearing the boos and the cheers and they're getting louder and the guys are in the ring. The other thing that is to me a major, major difference is, and this is a personal experience in 1968, 
Paul Butcher Vashan was going to come. He was going to be on our card for the first time teaming with his brother, Mad Dog. Butcher had never been here. I'd only heard about Butcher in those magazines we talked about. This is cool for me, baby. I Mad Dog and Butcher together. This is wild. And they're going to wrestle against the Crusher and the Bruiser. Well, it doesn't get any better than that, okay? So I went over to the drugstore, and I got one of those big white poster boards. I got out my magic markers and crayons. I'm a, I'm a dumb kid of 16 years old or whatever. And I made this poster, Crusher, Bruiser versus Mad Dog and Butcher. And I was going to show this at the when I went to the auditorium. So I got my poster with me. I had never done anything like this before. I get to the arena and the ushers, they said to me, what do you got there, son? What do you got there, kid? And I show, he says, you, you can't have that. You'll block people's view. And they took my poster. Okay. So I think, okay. And I was upset. I was upset, but if I'd have held it up, I would have blocked the guy behind me and you know, the whole thing. I get it. Well, when you look at TV wrestling today, everybody's got a billboard in front of them. You see? Yeah. The fans are more into it today to be part of the audience and to be part of that circle where they got some wrestler's name on a poster or some, some, whatever their uh, catchphrase is, you know, they got it on the poster. That's a difference. So the fans are, the fan base is different. Most of the people today, they know that everything that they see is totally rehearsed or, or not real. They're there for a different reason. Right. No, that's true. They're there for a different reason. And very often, and I've talked about it here too, they're there to try to be part of the show, you know, rather than kind of lose yourself in the show. And of right. course now, and I think this this was a WWF thing of really and, and really became the industry standard of lighting the entire crowd because they want you to see, look how many people are here. You exactly. Know? Whereas it it really was either the ring was the only thing you can see, or if you could, it was just very dimly lit and the ring was really bright. So you couldn't really see, you weren't paying attention to anything except what was going on in the ring. And Bill Apter, I think had this, this thing that he says, which I think is so brilliant where I think he said it when Bruno was inducted into the WWE hall of fame, he said, Sam Martino's entrance music was the gigantic roar of the crowd that was because he got a bigger pop than anybody that there was, you know, the loudest pop you could ever imagine. And when you heard that, you know, you knew it's Bruno San Martino coming out. That was like the equivalent of entrance music. And I also heard some of the older wrestlers, even somebody like uh, Ric Flair, I think has said this, and he's somebody who, you know, later in his career, he had entrance music. In fact, for most of his career, he has the famous, you know, 2001. And he and others have said that they actually preferred it before there was any music because they were able to gauge the reaction of the crowd better uh, because you could hear them. You didn't have to hear them over the music. So you could hear the cheering or booing or the level of volume easier when there wasn't any music, so you could gauge what kind of reaction you were getting. Here, here's something that I've always found interesting. In my era, the, you know, today when the WWE wrestler is in the ring and he's going through his spiel, and then all of a sudden there's 
going to be the entrance of somebody else. Well, before that person can come out, they start playing his entrance music. And then the wrestler in the ring will look, you know, like, whoa. We and, and no, we didn't have entrance music. We we know in today's world, you can no longer have the sneak attack or the surprise attack or the surprise entrance. Because in my day, the guy came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's in the ring. Holy cow, what happened here? You know, he come out of the audience or whatever it was, but it wasn't, it didn't look like it was scripted. And today I think you can tell, even a, a young kid can tell that everybody, no matter who they are on the card, what they're what level they're on the card, they've got entrance music. They're all worried about playing my entrance music. Um, in my era, Gorgeous George, which that goes way back, Gorgeous George, who, you know, probably gets the credit for being the first feminine, in a way, wrestler. Sure. He, uh, he, he had the peroxide blonde hair. He grew it longer, had a permanent put in it, strutted in the ring, had the big robes threw out his Georgie pins to the fans. And he had his entrance music, which he was the only one in that era that had entrance music. And it was Pomp and Circumstance, which is the song that later on Randy Macho Man Savage used. Right. Which I, I think he, if... I, I'm imagining because he he grew up in the business and he right. knew guys like Buddy Rogers and the Sheik. Yeah. And he was well, yes, definitely with... with his dad, of course. Yeah, with Angelo. So that's but, what makes me think that had to be on purpose. Had to be. But. But you have to remember that we didn't have entrance music. And George, Gorgeous George was the exception to that rule. And he knew from the beginning how to work the crowd, where he'd take 10 minutes to take that robe off and don't touch me from the referee. Keep your dirty hands off of me. And you know, he'd have his valet or or sometimes he had the lady valets brushing the ring off and spraying the ring to make sure it's clean anything to irritate the fans and he he was the, one of the first guys that would go to the you know look down at ringside see some lady sitting there with her husband and he and she, he'd say to her you know wouldn't you like to be in the along with a guy like me instead of that big fat well you know how do you irritate a crowd so much and here's the thing about the crowd when you talk about believing i cannot tell you the number of times over the years that i saw a crowd get out of control and either try to come to the ring to the aid of their babyface hero. I, I was there one time when a fan came right out of front row, wielding a doggone knife and coming at Mad Dog Vashon, who had fallen on the ring apron. And Mad Dog had been just creating all hell in the ring. And this fan came there. And of course, luckily, we had two security guards that were there to take this nut job away. We know wrestlers got stabbed. Mm. We know that they got stabbed going back to the to the locker room or uh, they had cigarettes. You know, in those days, you could smoke a cigarette or a cigar in their arenas. You know, you can't do that today, thankfully. But you, they'd have them put out on their back. Bill, Big Bill Miller, he had a two-by-four, hit him over the doggone head coming back to the ring or going back to the locker room. These guys in, in the old days – when they played their role as a heel, most of them would tell you that the opponent they feared most was the fan. Because sometimes they knew that they could push the button just too far and there would be a fan that would would take it too seriously. 
And those are people that you you know those people believed what they were seeing exactly. because if they didn't, they wouldn't be doing that, trying to kill somebody or hurt somebody at least. Well, and you know the thing is, out in your neck of the woods there on the East Coast, uh, Bob Windham, Blackjack Mulligan, he oh, got yeah. stabbed. Yeah. He had a big old scar on his on his leg, you know. And luckily, you know, a lot of the guys I, I've heard so many just say that in that era, when they played their part. They they feared for their lives. They would they would wait till everybody left the arena before they'd walk out to you know go to their car or whatever it was. And a lot of times they'd find if, if the fans knew where their car was, they'd flatten their tires or or you know break the windows out in their cars. Those are all true stories. And I found I, I've read accounts of where wrestlers would talk about how sometimes they'd be working a match and they would be very they would kind of feel the crowd. And they would start to get very cautious about how much heat that they were building. Like they would try to intentionally rein it in because they were fearing for their own safety. Like I even had a story in the Sheik book where it was the Sheik himself. I forget who he was working with. It might have been Bobo Brazil, but Brazil. More than likely, Bobo was an opponent every every night. He wrestled them a thousand (laughs) times. But it was a match where the opponent, the babyface, was doing something to uh, uh, make him put himself in peril in some way. And the sheik who's, you know, supposed to be the heel is saying to him, listen, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. You're going to get us both killed. And he's, he's, he's backing away because he's worried and, and thing, and who's going to be the one that gets killed him. Yeah. So he's consciously going, let's not go that far tonight, maybe a different night, a different crowd, but not here and not now. Well, and I mentioned Mad Dog Vashon a minute ago with a fan coming at him with a knife, and that was in St. Paul. Um, Red Bastine, he told me he loved wrestling Mad Dog. You know, you had the you had the opposites for sure. Mad Dog was a heel, and Red was, you know, just everybody loved him, good guy. And Red told me, he said he, he was in the match with Mad Dog, and Mad Dog's just killing him, you know, just getting the heat, and the crowd is just in a frenzy. And he said... Uh, Mad Dog finally said to him in the ring, he said, make a comeback, do the comeback. And, and that was the only way they were going to divert this. And, and Red said, so I would just start, you know, pummeling Mad Dog. And then the fans are, now they're cheering. And right. so they knew how, most of the time they, they had a pulse on how far they could take it. And they were careful. And, you know, usually it was the bad guy that would say, all right, come back, something, you know. And once that happened, you could lower the temperature in the building. Right, right. And it reminds me, too, when when we were talking before about how they would have heels who would be German or or Soviet or, well, let's stick with German or Japanese. The thing that's fascinating is that you've got an audience in those days where those are people in that audience Many of them fought the Germans and fought the Japanese. And or if they didn't, they at least remembered it. It was in their living memory, their lifetime, un- unlike today. And uh, it's amazing to me. It, that is such a difference that an audience would be willing to s- accept that and suspend disbelief. You know, when this was something that was very, very much relevant to their actual lives, their real lives. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, Brian... It's always been interesting to me because I had mentioned my dad being a World War II vet. 
you know, World War II, basically the world, the, the USA, the world itself kind of shut down for three years while we were fighting that war. And so many of the Americans went overseas. If they did come home, you know, they had lasting memories and trauma. But the other side of it is, and many with injuries that lasted the rest of their lives, handicaps. But the other thing was, is that if that didn't happen, they had they had friends or colleagues or brothers in the war that lost their lives. And so you come back here to America and now you're running these wrestling cards. The promoters, I mean, they're entrepreneurs. They, they knew how to, you know, sell a ticket. And you have that dirty Japanese or that dirty German or that dirty Russian or whatever it may be. And there was no way you couldn't have them get involved because you believed when when uh, the Germans would say, you know, we're going to win the, the title and we're going back to Germany with it. And, and you know, it, it just played with their hearts. And we got and I think that's what made the realism so so real I, I just think that's what it was and sometimes like you said i mean the german very few if any i mean i don't know if i could think of any german heel who actually was german and and the same goes for even a, a lot of the wrestlers that were the japanese heels would be they might be japanese descent or asian descent but they were hawaiian a lot hawaiian. of them were from hawaii or and yeah. and um the Soviets and things, very few of them were even what they were, what they were purported to be. Like I remember, you know, in later years, by the time I was watching wrestling, the big thing would be a lot of the Arab heels, you know, because you had the Iran hostage crisis and the Iron Sheik built an entire career off of that. You had things like that. And, but one of the interesting things is Iron Sheik is one of the few that you could say, well, he actually is from that culture. That's, that's his, um, that's his actual, he's up there speaking Farsi and, and things like that, that he had a certain amount of authenticity to it. Whereas even the original Sheik himself was, you know, born in the United States. His family was Lebanese, but he was born here. So it, it was very well, rare. And, and Adnan Casey, you know, he right. was a legit. Sure. Iraqi. Another one. But, um, and, and, and a great uh, amateur and, worked out of Oklahoma. I think he went to Oklahoma U. Uh, but, you know, de definitely coming later on. I mean, you know, he played a good guy for a lot of his career as Billy White Wolf, and he was a, 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 American, a Native American Indian. Right, with, with Jay Strongbow, who was Italian. With Jay Strongbow, <laughs> who was an Italian, you know, turned Indian. So that's what, rest, that's what made wrestling fun, yeah, is that true. the wrestlers were able to create a persona, a character. Um, we we had a wrestler here in the AWA, and I was talking about him the other night. I did a wrestling talk at one of our local museums here, and this guy came up. And Frank Shields, who was, I guess you'd refer to him as a journeyman wrestler. He had been around for about since about 1960, give or take. Main eventing some places, but mostly just a middle-of-the-card guy you know, doing well. Frank Shields, he was the wrecker in some territories. That was his name. And then he wrestled as uh, uh, the Boston Bruiser for a while. But real note, even a stupid name, he had Titanic Thompson, you know, whatever the hell that meant. <laughs> but 
basically was going nowhere. And in 1970, we, there was a national truck drivers union strike over the road truckers, you know, the big semi-trailer trucks and everything. Yeah. There was a national strike going on with the union. Frank Shields came into the AWA. And this is something about fans, too. That this, you'll like this. He came into the AWA. He had a truck driver's hat on and the blue denim shirt like a truck driver would wear and the blue jeans. He claimed he was an out-of-work truck driver due to the strike. And he was coming in here to beat up people because he's been beating them up on the loading docks all these years for free. So he thought he'd make some money beating them up for to, to become a wrestler. So he became bad boy Bolinsky. Okay. And he's a heel. Well, as he would wrestle the cards that he was on, honest to God, Brian, the fans would not boo him. They would cheer him. It felt bad and what for it him. really what it really came down to was he was a blue collar work. What's what's more blue collar in the world than an over the road truck driver that hauls everything coast to coast from your bed to your food to whatever it is. He, he was, he was a, a, a down to earth blue collar worker and they cheered him. And so Vern Gagne immediately just kind of did the switch of ruin, hooked him up with the crusher who is Mr. Popularity. And they became a good team for a while, a good draw. But that was Bolinsky, Frank Shields, who had the initiative to come up with this gimmick in the first place, originally to play a bully. I mean, what's what's worse than a loading dock bully who's pounding on people? You know, you're gonna hate the guy. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't boo him. So the fans changed him to a babyface. And then for the remainder of his career, he was the truck driver. Bolinsky. It's all about time and, and uh, you know, remember when uh, 1980-ish, 81, whatever it was, um, or no, 91, 90, 89, 90, when we had the Gulf Coast War and, and we ended up having Sheik Adnan Casey, he was just Sheik Adnan or General Adnan yeah. for WWE. That's right, and all of a sudden, Iron Sheik and, he, became, and he's with Sheik, and, and he became uh, uh, he went being from Iranian to Iraqi, and now yeah. he's Colonel Mustafa. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I will tell you this: you know, you've mentioned Ric Flair, and you've mentioned Cosro uh, Vasari, and you know, I had the opportunity to see those guys and so many more, like Ricky Steamboat and Bob Windham, and I got to see them in their first matches when they came out of Vern Gagne's training camp. Right. And uh, then went on to the careers. That I saw Dick Blood in his very first pro match out of the camp. So Dick many Blood people. Was, right. Yeah. Ricky Steamboat using his real name, which you would think would be the greatest heel wrestler name ever. Dick uh, Blood, Dick, can you imagine? <laughs> right. well, of course, of course, he had those looks, you know. Right. He, he, was, he, was, um, he was too good looking to be a bad guy. So Dick Blood may have not worked, but that was his real name, Richard Blood. That had to be, that was one of the most legendary training camps of that era. The people that would come out of it and just uh, Ken Patera, um, you mentioned Flair and the Sheik and Steamboat. And there was Chris Taylor for a little while. And I have, I, I, I was just with, I was with Greg Gagne on Monday, this past Monday. And we were talking again about the list of wrestlers 
that Vern Gagne had brought into the business, either by training them or assisting them. You know, a lot of times Vern would bring a guy into the territory and just have the other wrestlers on the in the circuit work with him. And we, we, we're up to 150 names. Now, all of those names, I can tell you, you go down the list and you think, you know, we had the Anderson brothers, Gene Lars and Ole. Those are all Vern Gagne trainees. Bulldog Bob Brown, Larry the Axe Hennig, Baron Von Raschke, Blackjacks, both Blackjacks, Lanza and Mulligan, uh, Billy Redclaw. Uh, you know, the list, Ken Patera, Brunzel, you know, you mentioned a couple of them already. Uh, the, the list is phenomenal. And every one of them, you think about the landscape of the kayfabe era without that talent out there, what would it have looked like? And then we had other trainers too, like Stu Hart was pumping them out. And the Funk brothers, oh, you know, yes. the Funk family down there, when they've got guys like Rhodes and Duncan and Brody and Hanson and, and a, a whole slew of others that came through their, their factory down there. Florida and, produced and, a lot too. And Eddie Graham and yeah. Hiro Matsuda, Hiro Matsuda or, and Boris Malenko. I mean, they train uh, tons of guys. The business, and that's what's really tough about the business today is we had all these wrestlers, Brian, that could go around the country and make tons of money. And they had a place to work every night of the week. They didn't like a territory, they could go to another territory. Or, or if they were done in the territory, they could call up XYZ promoter and come down there. They can't do that today. There are no territories. Sadly, if you don't work for Vince and maybe, what is it, AEW and yeah. a couple of the other. Yeah, there's minor, a few smaller groups now. Yeah, yeah. but, if, if you but can, it's not the diversity can, that it used to right. be. Certainly not. And so in the, in the old school era, um, and that's what Vern used to do. He'd train, you know, he'd have six guys come out of his camp and he'd call up Eddie Graham or call up uh, uh, Fritz von Erich or whoever it was. And he'd say, hey, I got this kid here. You know, can I send him down to you and have him work with, you know, your guys? Yeah. You know, Scott Irwin. You remember Scott Irwin, big Scott Irwin. He was a Vern guy and he had yeah. a career all over the place until he finally at the end came back home. But that's what they did in that era. And today the fans, we don't have that chance anymore. If you don't, if you're not with the big league, you don't, I mean, you can work for a, a tiny little hole in the wall independent that you're going to get paid 20 bucks to wrestle on. And you need to have a day job if you do that. And you, oh yeah. Then you got to, you know, you're only doing it because you just get your kicks and giggles on, you know, one night a week or whatever it is. Right. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I talk with, with a lot of people about that, how in those days you would have so many guys who, and they weren't even well-known wrestlers. They weren't famous wrestlers. They were under the radar, but they were able to have a, a career and, and make money and support a family and live whatever kind of modest middle-class life, just being a professional wrestler going, sometimes staying in one territory, sometimes traveling a bit. And they were able to do that thousands of them in that era whereas it, it like you said you have to be working for one or two of the big companies or you know there's a handful of independent wrestlers who are able to pull it off who raise their profile to the point where they get really good bookings and things but it's certainly not uh it's certainly not the norm and look at what wwe had to do where now they they have had to 
bring it all in-house. They have their own developmental systems and things where they try to grow people and from the ground up and have their own training camps and things because there's nowhere else that they could get people that will do what they need them to do. You know, they even exactly. complain about getting, sometimes they'll get independent wrestlers and they'll have to retrain them because they don't, you know. The other thing I would say is that a lot of times too, in the old school era, um, there were guys that they could be a main event, a headliner in one territory and they could go to another territory and they may not be the main event guy, but they could still make decent money Right. paid to do whatever their role was or where their position was and do well. And they were okay with that. Um, in today's world, that, that is it's just not possible. I, I just uh, want to thank you because um, this, these kind of conversations, these kind of, uh, of, of perspectives and memories is the reason why I started doing this show to be able to have conversations and preserve conversations like this. Uh, this is what it's all about to me. I appreciate you. I do. I appreciate anybody who's doing this. And um, I'm honored to be on. I hope you'll have me on again. Let's, uh, we can talk forever. Yeah, we certainly can. We'll have to do another one. Th thanks so much, George, for doing this. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you, Brian. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the great George Shire. That was so much fun. Thank you, George for giving of your time and for sharing some of your priceless experiences as a wrestling fan all those years. I'm sure a lot of my listeners value that very, very highly, as do I. Keep on listening to Shut Up and Wrestle because the guests keep on coming. Next week is episode 71, and this is one I've been talking about for a while because I will have on the show the author of the brand new Vince McMahon biography, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. I'm talking about Abraham Josephine Reisman, a fascinating conversation about Vince's life and history and his family and his impact on the business at large and even beyond the business. And that is coming next week to Shut Up and Wrestle. Other great guests in the weeks to come include the wrestling historian and author Tim Keenan. I know I've been talking about Tim for a while. He was my host during my trip to Michigan last month when I went to see the remains of Kobo Arena and lots of other stops in the city. Tim is on the way to shut up and wrestle along with a few other great guests that I will make mention of as we get a little bit closer. So keep listening. And where can you listen? Well, our website, suawpod.com, has access to every episode of Shut Up and Wrestle that we have ever done, so you can go there. Otherwise, you can go wherever you find your great podcasts in order to find about a year's worth of past episodes you will find in places like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, you know the drill, all the usual places, go there and subscribe. Also, make sure that you join the Facebook group, as I mentioned at the top of the show. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Lots of great content there. Please do join us and become a member. Also, while you're subscribing to a bunch of stuff and discovering a bunch of things, please do check out The Wrestling News. TheWrestlingNews.com, also on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page, 
The Wrestling News is your one-stop shop every morning for all of the wrestling news and information that you can handle to get you through your day, courtesy of the Arcadian Vanguard team. There's also my book, Blood and Fire, which is available in print, digital, and audio form on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and many other outlets. In fact, I got in a few copies of the old-school CD version. That's right, for us old folks, the CD version of the audiobook of Blood & Fire. You can even purchase that if that's what you like. If Audible is not your style, there is a CD version as well. In addition to Shut Up and Wrestle, you can catch me on the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast with Al Castle, the PWI podcast. Find it in all the same places that you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. And while I'm speaking about PWI, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I do write for that magazine every single month. And you can pick up copies at pwi-online.com. You can also pick out copies of the other magazine that I write for, Inside the Ropes magazine. Issue number 33 is out now with Gunther on the cover and my 60-year retrospective 60th anniversary of Bruno Sammartino winning the WWF World Championship from Buddy Rogers. Very proud of that one. Check it out at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. That's where you can get it. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can find me on Facebook, my author Facebook page, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author web page on the World Wide Web, my author website. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. So long, wrestling fans. 